I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Folks, do you feel like everything these days is go, go, go? It's nonstop from work to friends to family and a million pressing issues. Sometimes you just need to take a playoff and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. Hey, it's that time of year in Minnesota again to get out on the lake, go to the cabin, sit back, watch some baseball. Coors Light is the perfect refreshment to chill during these summer months. There's only one beer out there that's made to chill. The mountains on the bottom and cans turn blue when your beer is cold and that way you know it's time to chill hit that reset button with some mountain cold refreshment Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Coors Light is the one you should choose when you need to unwind. When you want to hit the reset button, reach for the beer that is made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Welcome to another episode of Purple Insider, brought to you by Scout Logistics. Matthew Collar here. We welcome into the show Justin Anderson, a guy who, uh, if you listen to the old show, you would probably recognize from Premier Sports Psychology, one of my favorite people to talk to about football, and a former quarterback. Am I right, Justin? You're right. <clears throat> Bulldogs. The, uh, the most uh, mentally um, fragile position, of course. The quarterback. No, I'm just uh, I'm just kidding, because I, I wanted to bring you on because we've had such great discussions about sports psychology and how people react to different situations and how to build cultures and all those types of things. Uh, and I thought some of this discussion would be really interesting to talk with the Super Bowl going on and especially these two quarterbacks, Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. Tom Brady, for my entire adult life, has been making the Super Bowl all the time. I I just wonder what you think about two guys with experience in doing this and how that must change how they handle it. Like, it's not the first time. And for Brady, it's the 50th time that he's doing it. And here's Mahomes on the biggest stage again. It It's actually unbelievable uh, what Brady has done. I, I just I'm absolutely blown away. And as I watched the the playoffs this year, I mean, it it was almost like we knew it was going to happen. Somehow he was going to find a way. Somehow he was going to he was going to pull it out, and and he did. And and to do it on a different team with a different offense, different coaches, staff, that to me is the most remarkable uh, component of it. But hearing how they did it, how the Tampa Bay Bucks did it, and how inclusive they were, and Brady was so much a part of developing that, uh, it now makes a lot of sense in terms of he designed a lot of it. So he felt a lot more comfortable in, in, in doing that. And I think as, as you get into more and more NFL teams, they're going to start to look at that and say, let's bring in the quarterbacks to start talking about des- helping design, particularly if you have a staple uh, quarterback in that position that you think you can build around. Um, because I, I think there still remains, no matter how good that, that uh, communication or that relationship is with the quarterback in the, in the OC or the quarterback's coach, um, that design, that feeling comfortable, knowing that um, I, I've had so many quarterbacks say, 
yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that play. The play is fine. But then they'll behind the scenes, they say, I don't like that play. Mm-hmm. And and they won't tell the coaches for, for whatever reason. But behind their head, uh, they just don't like that feeling or don't like that action. And um, and so, you know, when, when you were as a quarterback as I was, there were certain plays that when I got the call, I was like, oh, shit. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. And, and then I would look and I would be like, just don't get this thing picked off. I remember one play, it was a, a five yard uh, shotgun and it was a quick five yard out. And I had, so I'd have to get the ball really quick, you know, adjust it. And then it was about a 30 yard fl- throw to hit the five yard out. And I always envisioned, it's just going to be that cornerback sitting on that and he's going to jump and it's a pick six. And so every time that play came in, I was like, oh, I hope this doesn't go pick six. That was the first thought that I had. And inevitably, that throw was always wild. I threw that thing never – now I know a little bit about the psychology of what was going on for me. I wish I had back then. And, you know, it's it, that wasn't my role right there. It was – whoops, my watch. Um, it was it was just know that route and hit that route, you know, hit the, hit the spot, and that's up to up to the receiver to drive that, that cornerback off. But it is uh, really remarkable there. Mahomes is just an amazing uh, athlete in and of himself and how he creates and makes plays. It's unbelievable. I think what will be fascinating is sometimes the first-year athletes, when they're new in the league and they make it to it, they kind of just like, oh, you know, what's the big deal? But after they get there or they go through a period of not getting there, then coming back, I actually see more anxiety for them. I think Mahomes, being that he was just there last year, won't feel that. I think he's going to be right back into the same place that he was and, and what we've seen him throughout the playoffs this year. But um, but uh, for the most part, I, I think those two players are just head and shoulders above mentally than a lot of other players in the leagues. Now, uh, just to touch on both of the points, uh, an interesting part of Mike Holmgren's relationship with Joe Montana, I think, back when he was the uh, quarterback coach for San Francisco, that they did some of the same stuff when it came to, like, let's go through all of your plays and you tell me what you like best. And then if one of your plays that you love isn't actually working, then we'll take it out and we'll talk about it. And in Bruce Arians' book, he talked about every quarterback he had, which was Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, Andrew Luck, that each there was one day a week that they would meet and go through third downs. And the quarterback would pick out of like 20 plays the third downs because those are the plays that often define you know who's going to win at the end of the day is those big situations. So he would have the quarterback pick those. And you saw Brady, for example, the third downs in the NFC Championship game. It was just incredible, the passes he was making and the coolness and whatever and the comfort and also his command over the offense. And with Patrick Mahomes, I loved in the AFC Championship game when one of their receivers fumbled and the first guy over to him is Patrick Mahomes. Hey, you're going to help us later. They made sure to get him a touchdown pass. It's just like he has this sort of way of connecting with people. And this is where I think they're a little different. I think that Brady is like the general and I run all of this stuff and you all work for me where Mahomes has this way of connecting where he's like, I'm just a player. I'm just like you receiver. I'm just like you offensive line. And I think it's fascinating that it's not one thing that, you know, fits both of these guys. It fits, the, it fits their style. I, I 100% agree with you. I think the interesting piece is that with the next generation, I think they're going to respond a little bit better to the Mahomes style moving forward. And people are going to want to play around players like that. 
So I do think more and more uh, as as we go forward. But I think to your point, each each player has to play from their their style, their personality, and and be what they are, not try to emulate what somebody else is. And I think uh, Mahomes has really settled in and, and is just who he is. And people see that authenticity, and they they want to play, they want to go to bat for him, run through walls for him. So both of these guys also, situations don't bother them. They're as clutch as it gets. And there are always fun discussions about whether clutch exists because it could be kind of random at the end of football games, right? I remember watching Montana and Elway in a game where Elway led a game-winning drive, but then Montana led one back. And it was like, well, what, is is Elway not clutch because, you know, the other quarterback led it? But I also think that there is something to this, and you can tell me how you approach this from a sports psychology standpoint of players who want to be better in those type of situations and sort of what they go through mentally when last year, Mahomes, the Super Bowl's on the line. If you don't convert third and 14 and then he makes one of the great passes in the history of the game, always blows me away. It it really is. You know, one of the things that I find just fascinating in those moments, those players do not even have an ounce of doubt as, as going through their minds where I think a lot of us getting into clutch situations start to say, Oh, what happens if I mess this? What happens if I F this up? What happens if I don't do that? It goes to the what ifs on the wrong side of that. These guys are just so dialed in on here's step one, here's step two, or here's my read, 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 boom, this is what I'm going to do. And then it's just find that, find that way. And it's just a relentless hold of attention, if we really broke it down, it's this ability to hold their attention to those variables that matter for peak performance and letting it go of all the other distractions that most of us uh, normal beings uh, tend to to have creep into the the cognitive uh, focus window. Right. You never see Brady make a mistake on a read. I mean, you know, he'll throw interceptions. He'll make mistakes like everybody else, but he still is so much in command of the X's and O's and everything that's going on and his technical elements, which could be because he's played since the beginning of time. um, Part of it, you know, when you get in your forties, you're still playing in the NFL. um, You should know what's going on. You probably do if you're still around, but even Mahomes had this from a very young age. I mean, he went toe to toe with Brady in an AFC championship where he was fantastic in that game from the very beginning. And I wonder how much you think is sort of built into the personality and the, in the sort of makeup of the person and how much can also be trained and, and worked on. Yeah. So we've studied, we're studying that now a little bit more, you know, with some of the stuff we're looking at in the drafts and some of the, the data that we're with analytics, we're starting to, to pick up different traits and characteristics of, of, of personality and, and, uh, and human behavior. And we certainly see that, Almost every trait that we have uh, is on a continuum. So I might be right-handed dominant, so I'm, I'm more on the right-handed side of that continuum, but I still can do a lot of things left-handed. But I may not be able to throw a football 40 yards left-handed like I might be able to do right-handed. And so uh, to train my left hand to throw that 40-yard bomb, it's going to take a lot of time, and I may never get there with my left hand. My wiring is just not there in what it would take to get there would be some real significant training on that, on that regard. So we find the same thing with these types of traits. So there's this uh, kind of personality that is really starts to calm down in these higher pressure situations and is still able to hold its attention to those variables like we talked about that can impact performance. And for those that are on that side of the spectrum, we know we can grow them to being really, really elite. 
if somebody was on this side of the spectrum, we can get them to maybe here, but we mm-hmm. might not be able to get them to here. Right. Uh, from a sports psychology perspective, we can do some of the training and the focus training and, and whatnot. Um, but it, there are limits in terms of how far we can get them, particularly in the period of time that you have to do in the sporting world uh, to do that. But, you know, I, we go back and we use a lot of military training because they've been doing this for a lot of years to try to help uh, a really successful special forces, for instance, hold their attention to the variables that keep them alive in those situations, which is obviously a peak moment high pressure. Uh, and, and we know though that certain people don't make the cut to get into that space. Right. So, um, so it is looking at that because we take an average Joe and say, Hey, can you be this, this super, uh, special, special forces individual? And you just might not have the, the personality to, to do that or the, 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 the mental makeup to do that. It's so interesting how many times a rookie gets drafted and they have the potential and they've got the tools and the skill set, and then it's just not there for whatever reason. Maybe it's they can't gather the information, they can't focus themselves, they get intimidated when they're out there against players who are as fast as them. There's so many variables that go into it that are fascinating. One thing that always seems to stick out with people that succeed that I've covered. And this goes for someone like Stefan Diggs, big time. Um, But these two quarterbacks as well, they always seem to have some sort of like chip on their shoulder is kind of cliche, but it's always there like this extra level for them that it matters a lot that they show everybody that they were wrong. And I feel like even with Justin Jefferson, he's a first round draft pick, but anytime we brought it up with him of like, Hey, you know, why do you think there were other receivers who were taken in front of you? He would just get so upset. I mean, and and I think he's a first round pick, but it still bothered him that he had all the catches at LSU And there's that with Mahomes that Trubisky was picked before him. There's that with Brady that everybody was picked before him. And it just always seems to exist with these guys. It it really does. And that that competitive nature, that is something that I think is ingrained pretty early in in their lives. And as a psychologist, it sits in a lot of these draft uh, profiles at NBA Combine, NFL Combine. Um, We are looking specifically for these athletes to tell us stories about when they flipped the table over because they were so angry that they lost in Monopoly. Um, I want to know that they're angry that they lost. Um, I want that chip on the shoulder. And and we're able now to look at some things and ask some questions and, and, and look at some assessment tools as well to, to get at that a little better. But we're nowhere near where we still need to get to uh, to provide that that data. So it's still somewhat of a subjective clinical judgment that I'm using in those situations. But I can tell you that uh, more and more GMs are starting to say we we have gone for talent, 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 and we've missed because there's a growth mindset miss there. Mm-hmm. There's a, a chip on the shoulder miss that you're talking about, um, or there's this ability to focus miss that we missed. And those those three pillars, that motivation, uh, focus, and, and growth mindset, willing to learn, uh, are, are three really fundamental things that uh, we're finding. The athletes that have that, and have some of this innate ability, watch out, sky's the limit. Those are those tend to be the Tom Brady's. Yeah, and uh, the growth mindset is something that I've sort of uh, focused my eye on for young players because you mentioned it to me a while back, and with Jefferson, him talking about the first thing he did when he got here was kind of attached himself to Adam Thielen to learn from Thielen, and immediately a kind of a flare goes up of like, 
okay, that's a very smart thing for you to do. Like clearly you understand that this isn't just handed to you and you just walk on the field and start beating people like you might have in high school or in college. Um, I, I wanted to sort of talk about culture a little bit because, and I don't want you to speak obviously specifically to the Vikings culture, but I don't think they're in a great spot with it. And I think it needs to be rebuilt because in 2017, it was as good as I've ever seen it for any team I've ever covered. And I think that it was the individuals bonding together and pushing each other. Um, but I, I wonder what you think from the perspective of building a good culture with so many human beings involved. I mean, a basketball team's got 12 guys. This is 53 and each player's got his own coach. And it's, I mean, it's crazy how many people you have to have on the same page. It seems like an impossible task. It's a very difficult task, to your point. It, there's just so many chess pieces on the board that you have to try to try to manage. And anytime we're trying to manage human beings, we're dealing with emotion. And emotion isn't always rational. And so our responses to, um, to whatever uh, changes or things we're trying to implement are going to be all over the map. Uh, and, one, and that can change from one day to the next. So getting everybody on the same page and moving in the same direction is incredibly difficult. However, that is a, it is a, a problem that many organizations, mostly in the corporate side of studying, have, have really worked on. Um, and they've said, well, what are some of these key constructs that can help build culture? And one of the things that they found is at the core of great cultures is a mutual trust and respect. And then they've dove further and said, well, how do we get that? We don't have to like each other. So some of this that, well, we're all buddies off the field. And that's not that, that's not the reality of pro sports. I mean, everybody has their families and they're doing their own thing and mm -hmm. they come together, they do their job. And, and, and a lot of times they go they go their separate ways afterwards. That's still OK. You can still have a, an amazing culture and have people not be best friends uh, off the field. Right. So I really we push back against the best friend approach or thinking, hey, let's let's do a lot of team activities outside. Sometimes that backfires because uh, it, it bringing people together doesn't always uh, work. But the four pillars that they have found in some of the research around building mutual trust and respect are one, setting good, clear expectations not just, hey, we want to win a Super Bowl, but what are the expectations of this, ro this room, this position group? You know, what do we stand for? What are we doing? Where are we going? How are we going to operate? Um, so really clear expectations. And that also includes for people in their roles. So clarity around, okay, what is going to be my role? One of the biggest things that can upset an organization and trust in the organization is if somebody thinks they're going to get a lot of catches, and then all of a sudden they're they're put in a position where they're not getting a lot of a lot of catches, mm -hmm. um, and they're in a blocking position or whatnot. Talk about disruption! Now that person becomes angry, frustrated, and what happens to that room? Um, you start to deal with some distress. Right. So now we're dealing with a poor culture versus a positive culture, all because expectations weren't met. The second pillar is structure, and and when we look at structure, it is: do we have clarity around reporting lines? Do we know exactly what? Uh, you know, when our meetings are, what our deadlines are. I mean, just structure within the organization, including communication structure, what needs to get back to certain people at certain times. The third thing is processes. So within our structures, so, it, you know, within our practices, within our time on the facility, what are we actually doing and how do we navigate that? And do we have standards for that? Do we have standards on how we communicate and standards on how we interact? Do we have standards in that regard, and do people know what those standards are? 
And then finally is is really understanding personality, your personality mm-hmm. and the personality of others, which includes some of the emotional intelligence components uh, and those things. If you got those four things, we tend to find that culture tends to be much stronger because you have mutual trust and respect. And even if there's conflict, people can have conflict, but they can come back together afterwards. Right. And uh, And that is really required for great teams. People will call each other out but there's enough trust and respect there that they're calling them out for the right reasons. And I think that the biggest thing that can tear it apart is the finger pointing and the sort of talking between the lines because everybody figures it out in the NFL. If you did it in uh, 1964 in the old NFL, maybe uh, if you didn't pick up the newspaper that day, you didn't see your teammate saying something, read between the lines, but sure ain't going to miss it now. I mean, you're going to have you're going to have 20 fans tweeted at you if there's anything that's, uh, you know, a quote from somebody else that might be kind of bad backstabbing or whatever else. And uh, I think we've seen some of that here where there's a lot of read between the lines. And I think that takes away from that trust that you're talking about, that communication and just knowing where people stand. And I I think it's got to, it's got to find its way back to where it was. And I wonder how much you put on the individual players and how much you put on the people in charge when it comes to something like that. Again, not talking specifically about the Vikings, but just in general. Yeah, yeah. Just in general, I would say I think it all starts with creating the space for that structure to work, the expectations, the the, the structure, the processes. Those three things are leaders. Um, and so it's it's what are what's the container we're going to create, and can we can we allow for some expectations there to be really clearly laid out? If that happens, and we can do that. Uh, consistently over time and and repeat it because certain players aren't going to hear it or not going to hear it the right way. So it's amazing. You might say it once or twice or three times and it may not land, 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 and the fourth time it lands. So uh, we have a lot of leaders saying, I said that, I did that, and then it, but the the, the player didn't hear it. And so it it, it can be really, uh, you know, so it's, it's thinking about how to do that. But then I, I do think there is responsibility in the players, too. I, I think this is a both-and answer, and the players have to recognize that everything isn't going to go according to plan. So even mm-hmm. if we have expectations, um, those expectations can change. In fact, one of the things that I always qualify leaders in saying is let them know that here's what we're hoping to do, but things can change as the season goes on, and you need to be prepared for it, and here's what I expect from you if things change. So if we need to put you in a different role, this is what I would, I would, I would hope for you to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and have that conversation earlier versus reactively after the fact, because players uh, before it happens are much more agreeable to it. After it happens, not getting communicated, good luck bridging that. So that, that is uh, the error that we would want to make is, is do it on the front end versus the, the back end. The one thing of all athletes that I've ever talked to that they can't stand is when they get left in the dark, when they're just kind of guessing, they go to work from day to day. They don't really know what they're going to get. They don't know what, like you said, um, they don't know what role they're supposed to play or it gets switched on them in, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that is uh, I think consistent thing across every sport that every athlete can agree on is just tell me what you want from me. Don't make me have to guess. Uh, I wonder um, about COVID and how you think, 
um, it's affected just everything in the world. I mean, there were no fans this year and there's, uh, you know, you can't see your family in, in the case of a lot of these players and things like that. They're in different States than they grew up or that they live or their families in. Uh, I'm kind of amazed that they got through it, but I can't imagine the mental stress on these players who have gone this long all the way into February and are still dealing with this. It is, uh, it, that has been a real grind. Uh, from a mental health perspective, and we're seeing a little bit more of, of some players coming out and, and sharing some of their stories. And, and, um, and, I, and I think there's a lot more I can share with you that with the teams that we're working with, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes there in terms of, of struggling. And I think that's just a lot of us, right? I mean, we're, we're all dealing with more of the isolation. And we know isolation, we're social beings. And as great as Zoom has been and, and uh, being able to make us connect or FaceTime or all of our social media, it's nothing like being in person. And, and we know that the brain lights up differently and it, it really responds differently to that eight-foot rule that we talk about. There's something about being in the room uh, that, that lights the brain up. We're not fully understanding why that is yet, but, but it is. It does happen. Um, so we know that that can be a real, real char- recharge. But the uncertainty, to your point, of not knowing schedules, not not being able, when am I going to see my family? Is my family healthy? Um, all those types of things around the uncertainty. And then you compound that if you're not getting information from the organization and there's more uncertainty there, you get past what we call that stress threshold. And everybody has a threshold of what we can handle. Mm-hmm. And when it gets past that, we start to operate on one of the psychologists that I used to read a lot, Carl Jung, talked about we – we operate from our shadow side of our behavior Hmm. and we all have it. Um, You know, we can, we can be really amazing individuals and we can be really dark uh, individuals um, when we're not getting some of our needs met. Well, we pulled our needs from a lot of, a lot of folks and, or pulled the way that we get our needs met from a lot of folks. And that has created this, we're flirting with that threshold uh, over and over again every day. And so we don't have much of a capacity to handle an additional stressor. I think we've gotten into the routine, but we're right there, a lot of us. Sure, yeah. And, and then if something else happens, maybe we get a little shorter with people, we, we act out a little bit more. Um, and so that that's the thing that we've been really educating a lot of our groups with, um, is recognizing where they're at and then how can they recharge in uh, different ways than the way they used to recharge. And that that's been the struggle this year. Man, everybody can relate to what you just said, I think. Um, fascinating stuff. Who's winning the Super Bowl, you think? You know, it's tough to go against Brady, but I think I think Casey's just too tough. I, I, uh, I think so too. I'm, I'm going to go with Casey. I think so too. The fact that they have a good defense adds to it. Like, who can beat Mahomes? But also, did you see their defense against Buffalo being able to shut down, you know, their top quarterback? So, well, I, I can't thank you enough for all of your time. If people want to connect with you, PremierSportsPsychology.com um, is a good way to do it and learn more about what you do. If uh, you have any sports psychology needs, reach out to you there. And it's always super in, just uh, insightful and, and fascinating to me to listen to you talk about the mental side because it's something that I've always been interested in and, and I hope everybody learned from it. So thanks so much, Justin, for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure talking to you. You could do it all day. 
Hey, I want to take a second to tell you about our friends at Stout Logistics, and I really mean it when I say friends. They are fans of Purple Insider over at Scout Logistics, and they reached out wanting to support this show, and I want to tell you about what they do. Scout Logistics is just-in-time transportation for perishable, non-perishable, and fragile freight from source to door. And if you're wondering what that means exactly, well, if you own or work for a company that needs shipping solutions, they're the preferred carrier of Fortune 500 companies across North America, and we have quite a few of those in Minnesota, right? They could ship perishable, non-perishable, oversized, or fragile goods, and they have on-time delivery rate of over 99%. So if you're like them and you enjoy the show and you have shipping needs, check out ScoutLogistics.com or call 855-217-2688, extension 232, to connect with them directly to find out how Scout Logistics can minimize risk, overperform, and go the extra mile for your company. With Rivers McCown, one of my favorite guests from earlier this year when the Vikings played the Houston Texans. And Rivers, when we talked earlier this year, you were kind of laying out the foundation of how things were going with the Texans. <clears throat> bad. Super bad. And you were mentioning this guy, Jack Easterby, and how he had this weird power within the organization. I was like... That sounds pretty crazy, man. Uh, I did not expect, though, after we talked, that the entire world would find out about Jack Easterby's power and that the uh, McNair family would run Deshaun Watson out of Houston or make him want to feel like he never wants to play for the Texans again. So, you know, how's your offseason going so far? Well, I'm dead inside. Oh, that, that was great. <laughs> I love you do one of the best bits in the world, which is to just record scrolling down anything the Houston Texans tweet. It's yeah. just like free Deshaun, get you know, let Sean Deshaun out of here, fire the McNairs or whatever. Um, well, I don't even know where to start with this aside from the Vikings connection. And the Vikings connection is this: Vikings fans want your quarterback. Can we have him? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> Can anybody have him? I don't. I, they shouldn't be able to have him. I feel like, but I mean, this is kind of a situation where logic no longer applies. <laughs> we have the Texans kind of in their own, as I as I like to call it, the, the uh, Texan cinematic universe, where Deshaun Watson is going to come back. Everything's fine. Everything is happy. Everything's peachy. He's under contract for many many years, and then you've got the Deshaun Watson camp, who kind of just laughs about. Potential being traded on versus or whatever that show was on the, the NFL Network ran. So, man, it's been it's been an off season of uh, tumultuous times, and it's not even you know post Super Bowl yet. I know. I feel the same way. It's like we've had so many things happen in the off season, and it's not even the NFL off season yet. Uh, well, let me ask you the uh, obligatory question, and then you can kind of explain how the heck we got here to Deshaun Watson demanding to be out. The obligatory question is, how much do you think that it costs? I mean, I can't figure out with my brain a way to make the Vikings have enough draft capital to give to the Houston Texans or players or whatever combination, even if they trade Cousins and then make another trade for Watson. I mean, I just... I've tried everything, and uh, I got I wrote them down, and none of them seem to work. So, what do you think that the compensation needs to be in order for a Deshaun Watson trade to make sense? So, I don't think there is but one team in the NFL 
for who that trade actually does make sense. And kind of, you know, the more draft picks you throw at it, it's kind of a weird situation because since Watson has no trade clause, you know, you throw all these draft picks and all of a sudden, you know, he's the only player you're getting for so many years. You're creating a situation where simultaneously Deshaun Watson doesn't really want to be there. So (laughs) it's, it's really a fascinating little (laughs) scenario where you can't bankrupt the team he's going to go to, but also you need fair value. And kind of where I settled on this is the only destination that I think makes any sense at all is him going to the Chargers for Justin Herbert and some combination of picks. Yeah, because you you make a great point that if you trade him to the Miami Dolphins and they give you all their firsts, that hurts their ability to be a great team, though they are – a uh, good team, I think, right now. So maybe he would view that as even if they have to give up a couple of first-round draft picks. But then all of a sudden, Matt Stafford gets traded. And I don't know if they're connected at all in their value, but when you see two first-rounders for Stafford, two first-rounders for Jamal Adams, two first-rounders for Khalil Mack, it's like, well, Deshaun Watson is one of the five best quarterbacks on the planet and is 25 years old. Two first-rounders Yeah, well, that doesn't count. Any trade made by the Texans doesn't count in terms of relative uh, figuring out the value. So that, but that sets a bar though, right? It's like, well, you've got to do better than that. So if it's three or it's two first two seconds, you make a great point that you're harming the other team's ability to be good. But Miami is the one that would make sense to me because you could give up a young quarterback and a top draft pick, and not necessarily ruin what they've been building for a few years. So I think Tua is kind of an interesting quarterback right now. Uh, obviously, that first year he had some ups and downs, uh, a lot of benchings, and you know, you know, he openly admits himself. You know, he didn't play as well as he could have. So do you do you see that as a buy low, or do you see that as maybe a quarterback who's hit all that he can hit right now? And kind of the reason I settle on the Chargers is because the same the same uh, sort of attention-grabbing move that the Rams just made, they need to be competitive in that L.A. marketplace. And that from that perspective, I can see why you would actually take the move for Deshaun and move on from Herbert. Not that I think that anybody would ever want to move on from rookie contract Justin Herbert, right. but just like I think that little wrinkle there makes it at least interesting. Whereas the rest of the teams, you know, I kind of looked up at all these other quarterbacks. You know, you can throw, you can say like, what's second best rookie contract quarterback? Maybe Kyler Murray. Which is, there's no way in hell the Texans are reading DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson in Arizona. <laughs> right. That's not happening. So that when I when I try when I try to come up with something like that, I mean, I know people look at these number two, number three pick, and they're like, oh, well, you can get a quarterback there. I don't necessarily know if it's the same caliber, and I think. The only way that really makes sense is if you get a, kind of a sure thing. Right. Would you do Trevor Lawrence straight up for Deshaun Watson? I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade Deshaun Watson for any, any of these packages. I'm going to be honest agree. with you. I agree. It's ridiculous that we're discussing this. The Texans are a stupid franchise for making any of this happen. But <laughs> be, be that as it may, no, I still wouldn't do that, that trade either. I wouldn't do it either, and I love Trevor Lawrence as um, eventually, I think, a very, very good quarterback and maybe even an elite quarterback, but I already know that Deshaun Watson is one, and his contract is not so crazy that you can't work around it. If you've got a young team, we've seen teams like, I mean, even Tampa Bay right now, 
Um, Tom Brady has a $25 million cap hit. They worked around it. Aaron Rodgers has a pretty big cap hit. They worked around it. So you could do that with Deshaun Watson because he is that good. But let's let's talk about how they got to this point with Deshaun Watson, if you're going to be okay in discussing it. <laughs> like I said, I'm dead inside, that's so it's fine. Right. Okay, that's right. Um, but when we last talked, you were mentioning just sort of the um, the strange nature of how things were being done there, the uh, preposterous moves that they had made, like the Laramie Tunsil trade, like the DeAndre Hopkins trade, and then Bill O'Brien goes, and then you thought, oh, the bad man is gone, so now they'll fix this. And it seems like it's just gotten way worse since Bill O'Brien left. Yeah, because Bill O'Brien was, for all of his faults, a, a source of power in Houston. Uh, removing that all of a sudden, you know, you had a – after that Vikings game, we basically – I want to call it like a glorified uh, summer camp hike through the rest of the season of Romeo Cornell. <laughs> uh, Jack Easterby assumed general manager duties. Uh, he has not met with the media at all since Bill O'Brien got fired. Just, just consequence free, living in the zone. Right. And, uh, you know, as, as we move on to this offseason, of course, you know, there's a lot of speculation that, you know, they pushed out Bill O'Brien. Why is Jack Easterby still here? And it turns out that they have a very close connection, the McNairs and uh, Mr. Easterby, and that has superseded everything that a football franchise should be about. <laughs> and that's the life all Texans fans are living right now as everything is on fire. So if people don't know, this uh, Easterby was a, what, pastor or something for the New England Patriots. And then yes. character co- coach, it, char- character coach, right? That, and sort, then, that sort of genre of guy, just, right. just someone to inspire you, someone to make you feel good about yourself. Which is great. I like feeling good about myself. But how did he go from that? And Bill Belichick even said on the record, he's not a player evaluator. He's not a general manager. Like, that's not what this guy is. So how does he go from character coach slash team pastor in New England to acting general manager of another NFL team? I mean, that seems like an all-time grift. Yeah, it's amazing to kind of lay it all out there. And I know that saying this out loud makes people upset at me. I know that this is kind of a divisive topic, but just that shared religious connection between the McNairs and Easterby is the biggest deal as far as how he's able to get a foot in the door here. And, you know, the McNairs have always been very religious, even back to the days of having Rick Smith here. They connected over religion the same way, mm-hmm. uh, which I think Albert Breer did a lot of good reporting about. But, but yeah, it's, it's a situation where those two have connected over something that isn't football, and because Jack Easterby works hard and is able to kind of sell this grifter's idea of, well, you know, it hasn't worked out yet, but if you trust the plan, trust in the process, we're going up, we're going to mm-hmm. keep getting there. And he's been able to so far blind McNair. And it's something where even kind of if you read that Sports Illustrated article, the first one that came out about Easterby, uh, it kind of puts that in like the second, the second real section the in the end line something like we talked to like 40 people and all of them are very concerned that McNair won't listen anyway and that he's blinded by Easterby and as we've gone through the offseason nothing has run truer than that line to, this is just wild though I mean a lot of people assume that every NFL owner 
wants to win games. They want to have the smartest football people in the world. And I'm sure you get this every once in a while. If you were so smart, why aren't you running the team? I guess because I didn't bamboozle or hoodwink an owner. I guess that's why. I mean, it's crazy. You have some teams that are investing so much in analytics and scouting and everything to get every single piece right. And I think that the Vikings are one of these teams. And they don't always get it right, that's for sure. But they have like a longtime proven general manager and head coach and all those things and a front office that is as, you know, I guess detailed or expensive as any front office. And then you've got in this very same league just a guy who's running everything. It's just to- it's to- it's almost like you wouldn't believe it. That that listen Okay, Nick Casario is the third highest paid GM in the league right now. So, and how I much mean, power does he have? You, you can't act like they don't they don't pay for their guys. Okay, the problem, that's true. The problem with that is just that the guys that they pick are guys that really shouldn't be picked only because they give Jack Easterby more power. And kind of surrounding, you know, the the in the in the press conference, which was uh, the Nick Casario press conference, which was a disaster. Mm-hmm. As it happened, as it was unfolding, everybody was just like, oh, God, we're screwed. But in that press conference, um, Cal McNair says something along the lines of, uh, well, you know, Jack does a lot of things. <laughs> nobody he, nobody could actually answer why <laughs> he was given more power, why he was still here. It was just Jack does a lot of good things. Jack serves. <laughs> and this is where we're at. We're We're all just sitting here from a – how can I put this from like a rational standpoint, just, just being like, what, what's happening here? <laughs> right. Right. Should like Roger take the team away from them? I mean, I, we're, him, he but, should. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, we're reaching like Donald Sterling level, just incompetence and craziness. Um, now, so you get a new coach and you get a new general manager and the coach hire Now, this really stuck out to me. So the coach hire seems like it was, hey, Deshaun, we got you a black man who did the passing. Am I right? And it's like, yeah, for a team that didn't pass very well. And also this guy had some odd quotes about like Hollywood Brown and how he what wouldn't call him Hollywood because he hasn't won rings yet or something like, okay, so you hired another. It's like weirdos really attracting weirdos, huh? They think that David Culley can inspire people, okay. and that seems to be kind of the main criteria they went with. There. That's the overwhelming majority of the quotes about him are about what a good guy he is. Uh, one interesting thing I found researching him is he has a 20-minute interview with his local library on YouTube. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, no, and, that's nice. And this is before anybody knew he'd be a head coach, obviously. And in that video, he's like, my dream – is to coach my high school, and I was like, okay, that's 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 weird that you brought that up. Cool, but but yeah, I mean, I, I, cool retirement dream, I guess. He's already sixty-five. He's gotten you know a lot of years out of his league in the NFL, and uh, then he comes back to the press conference and he says it again. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, 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 is this actually what he wants? I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
<laughs> this is a little scary. Want to remind you about our friends at Soda Stick. If you use the promo code Purple Insider, you can get free shipping at SodaStick.com to get your original Minnesota sports inspired goods. There's so many great designs, including Chuck Foreman's Spin Doctor shirts, Skull hats, straight cash homie shirts, and much, much more. And if you are a hockey fan with that getting going soon or a basketball fan, make sure you check out all sorts of great designs. Their apparel is screen printed here in Minnesota on super soft. Super comfy shirts and hoodies. You will love it. That's SodaStick.com. S-O-T-A-S-T-I-C-K.com. Original Minnesota sports inspired goods. Code Purple Insider for free shipping. Also, if you watch the Ravens passing game, um, I'm making a thumbs down. Like, it's not good. It's not good. Kurt Warner did like a 10-minute video breaking down how Lamar Jackson had no answers in playoff games. And this is the guy that you want to bring in who is in charge of that. That's also weird. And the other thing was, too, that, I mean, there were a bunch of candidates out there. And I know that everyone would look at the situation with kind of an eyebrow up of like, is this really a good situation? But there probably were other human beings in this world that could have convinced Deshaun Watson or at least pushed him in the direction of, why don't you give it one more shot with me? And then if it doesn't work out, that's fine. But instead they go with someone who to me is like hiring your grandpa. I mean, is this, like, is this, is this what, is this what Deshaun Watson really wants and thinks it's going to take him to the next level? I just can't see it. I compared him to grandpa from the boondocks. Yeah. That first, oh, <laughs> that first pressure. Yes. yes yeah. That's great. Yeah. That that. That, that did stand out for sure. Um, I would say basically the, the way it played out uh, here was that Eric Bieniemy was brought in for an interview, and they decided that he wanted too much power oh. with the roster, and that that, that kind of was a, a big sway for them. Um, and then, you know, when you look at that in a vacuum, you're like, why does that matter that much? The coach should have some power. The coach should have some say. But they took that in an interesting direction, and I think the candidates they wound up with at the very end kind of fit that whole nature of, you know, you got Leslie Frazier and you got David Culley. You got guys who nobody else in the league has even interviewed for a head coaching job. Right. They nice want guys somebody. Too. Really? They want somebody who they can control. Right. They want somebody who right. is. Hate to bring it up again. They want somebody who is religious. They have they have hired exclusively religious people for um, their head coach job, for their defensive coordinator job too. So, I mean, <laughs> this is this is where we're at. But it it doesn't seem like it would be that hard in football to find someone religious. It's almost like they have a baseline religious that you need to be over, as mm-hmm. into the like really really religious. In, in order to be hired, which, again, not exactly the best process. So with Watson, where do you think he's at? I mean, if I'm him, I'm doing Carson Palmer. I'm just saying, look, I got a lot of money already. I'll wait. And there's nothing that you can do to make me play. And, you know, the thing about it, I know he's got a contract and all that, but 
it just doesn't help anybody for you to have a quarterback under contract and have him say he's not going to play. Every time this has ever happened with players saying, I'm not going to play, usually it's contract-related, but when it's situation-related, they always get traded. Even Stephon Diggs, who never said he wasn't going to play or anything, but even Stephon Diggs wasn't happy. The Vikings traded him away. That's how these things usually end, but I feel like anything is possible in Houston. Yeah, I mean, I think where Deshaun Watson is at for sure is is kind of uh, the last straw here was being told that he would have input in the head coach GM search and then finding out on Twitter that all of a sudden, by the way, Jack Easterby has made a last-minute move circumventing all the, uh, what was it, the, the head coach committee, Corn Ferry people, who they recommended a bunch of GMs and – all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, Jack Spears like, oh, I don't know about those guys. Uh, Cal, what if we go hire Nick Casario? We can get him the jet today. Let's pray on it, buddy. Let's pray on it. And they actually <laughs> did pray on this. I'm not, I'm not just, like, snarking it up. They actually did reportedly pray together on that decision. So, yeah, that happened. And I think Deshaun rightfully is pissed off. Um, I don't know how they can bridge a gap without Easterby being fired. I don't think that it's possible. I don't think it's possible for them to even get the team on the same page with uh, ownership without Easterby being fired, which it's, it's, it's amazing how the distraction has been allowed to fester. So that's part of it. And, yeah, I mean, kind of the way I see it is with how they operate in their own cinematic universe, their own beliefs, there is no reason for me to believe that he's getting traded so we're just going to have a long standoff, and it's going to be an ugly offseason. It would just make so much sense for them as an organization, which I know this is uh, it doesn't match up with how they do things, is stuff that makes sense. That if you alienate your best player and he says he absolutely will not come back to you, that you get whatever you can get. I mean, think about actually Cincinnati, their trade for Carson Palmer. It actually worked out for Cincinnati. They got, I think, a first and a second for Carson Palmer. Oakland, it was a disaster for him. He ends up signing in Arizona, so it doesn't work at all for Oakland. And Cincinnati uses that to build themselves up another contending team without spending a whole lot of money because their owners are cheap. And it, as crazy and as a bad of a situation as Houston's in, it's not – horrible if you trade him away. I mean, it is for every fan, of course, for now. No, no, it's horrible. It's horrible. Right, it's horrible. But in terms, of a, in terms of a long-term rebuild, that kind of thing, which you need because the roster just has no talent. So, I mean, trading for a Justin Fields or something, it's not entirely worth it, of course, because he's not Deshaun Watson, but it's better than just letting him sit out and be mad at you. See, I think that <laughs> from a talent perspective, it isn't close. And the, the the thing about all these other quarterback situations are, you know, you're talking about older guys, guys who've been through the ringer, even guys like Stafford, who, you know, have been there, been in Detroit since 2009. He's like, I'm over this. Yeah. But, but Deshaun Watson is like 25 years old. He's, he's one of the five most valuable assets in the NFL right now. Mm-hmm. And so you're never going to get kind of a fair value for him, no matter what you trade for him. No matter, I don't care if you get four firsts, you know, it's like, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to guide kind of, I guess the best way to put this is Nick Casario is a, is a 
typical football GM. He's, he approaches with his GM vision. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's going to get rid of him for less than what he's worth. And there are not many teams that can give you what he's worth. Right, right, yeah. So the way you see it then is what? They go into training camp and Watson shows? He's getting fined every day. He's getting fined every day for not showing up. And, you know, I think it might come down to contract tolling even at this point. So, you know, it might show up at like week nine or whatever, whatever date that is. I always forget. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where my standpoint is. And until we see any kind of crack in reality in Houston and particularly with ownership, kind of realizing what's going on here, uh, I mean, that's just where we're going to be. Uh, I think Watson's camp is really confident right now, but he'll get traded. But I think that might pass after the draft. I think once that happens, I think we're in for, for a long, long summer. So well, when I look at this, I also think about kind of the NBA and some situations that went on there, like uh, Kawhi Leonard, you know, basically faking an injury in San Antonio so he could get out and go play for Toronto. Uh, Anthony Davis in New Orleans did the same type of thing so he could leave. And then James Harden, it's the players who have the control, there's only a few of them in all of sports, but they can pull for old Seinfeld fans. They can pull kind of a Costanza and they can, if you know the reference, you know, like Costanza takes the Yankees world series championship and ties it to his car and then drives around the parking lot. And just like, they can do things to the point where the team has no other option. And I just wonder about like the standoff and to make another TV reference is maybe more modern, like the episode of the office where they're all like pointing at each other and just like, you know, I forget what exactly the storyline was there, but you've seen that. So, There's a storyline in the office? Not really. But, you know, My- Michael, uh, I think he has them playing some sort of game, and then they're in a standoff where it's Jim and it's Andy, and they're all pointing their finger guns at each other. And that's that's kind of how this feels. It's like, who who ends up blinking first? It doesn't seem like the McNairs want to blink, but it certainly – doesn't really benefit Deshaun Watson to just come back and play for a team that is treated in this way. Right. Um, I think that Deshaun Watson's brand kind of overcomes this though. I don't know. Like, I don't know how it's going to play out for sure. Obviously we're months and months and months away from that even being relevant, but Deshaun Watson has really built a kind of a brand of, uh, you know, doing things with good faith, um, playing his ass off at all times. Uh, I do think he would come back, and I think it would be hard for him to, like, you know, rudder down or show up fat or whatever people mm-hmm. are saying. Uh, I've seen a couple of memes around that, but I, I, I really do think that in that event he would have to show up until his contract. Um, you don't want to be here any longer <laughs> than you have to, of course. And uh weird thing for me in that situation would be if the Texans actually would want him back because if he's not back the first eight weeks or whatever, they're going to be – a, a flaming, flaming dumpster. <laughs> right. And at that point, you know, having actually gotten your draft picks in a year where you go four and 12, I wonder what that's like. Um, you know, you might, <laughs> you might actually want to, to continue to lose. And I don't mean to say this um, as in it's the best part, like for your team, cause it's not, but it's the best part of the story that they were so terrible and still don't even get their draft pick. <laughs> like, the Miami Dolphins gets a draft for you when you go forward 12. It's just like the cherry on top. And also I want to ask you about this because there is, I wouldn't say that there's a ton of intrigue here um, for the Vikings, but maybe a little JJ Watt 
Is this it for J.J. Watt? In Houston? Yeah, yeah. I, I would I would definitely bet on that. Just just given how he went through the season, given I think it's very obvious to anybody who has watched or covered this team that he is not happy with the direction that they took, and he is not happy with Jack Easterby in particular. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that he will get traded at some point this offseason, and I will be sad because they're probably not going to get a good value for him. And, I mean, he's still the best player in franchise history, in my opinion. And, you know, even though the sack number was down last year, it looks kind of ugly. Uh, doesn't really matter to me because kind of the eye test, he still passes it. And mm-hmm. the defense last year was coordinated as if they were trying to lose games at times. <laughs> so, like, it's really hard to understand why they made some of the moves they made. And, yeah, I just think he's, he's still got some juice. I guess I look at it as there are many Vikings throughout history that have been somebody's last stop. And uh, maybe you got to make a phone call there if you're the Vikings to check in because their defensive line was um, such a struggle this year. So um, I'd love to yeah. have yeah, between, between let me say let me say this between JJ Watt potentially leaving and between this Deshaun Watson thing, um, this is a dark time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, is, this is a very dark time, and a lot of fans are telling me that they're not going to follow the team next year at all. Um, so, I mean, I mean this when I say this. I, I actually have tweeted at Goodell and been like, "Listen, if Deshaun Watson gets traded, we don't have a franchise anymore." Okay. Like, this is going to be something where you might want to just contract the team in advance. Nobody's going to show up. Right. Toronto needs an NFL team, don't they? Sure. Go go for it. Go international. (laughs) Take the McNairs to Toronto. I was going to say that, you know, I wanted to end on some sort of lighter note um, because I usually give you some ridiculous uh, trivia with the Texans or something like that. Um, I don't have anything. So... (laughs) And even to bring up the Super Bowl is like, yeah, remember the quarterback who was drafted the same year and then his team is in the Super Bowl and like they're kind of like each other in terms of how good they are. So there's that. Um, well, I mean, the Texans did did prefer Mahomes from what I've heard. So, I mean, that's, 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 that's cool too. But it doesn't really matter now, does it? <laughs> no, it does not because it would just be him wanting out instead of uh, Mahomes. So maybe you can just give me your uh, most exciting thing for the Super Bowl. Why not? Most exciting thing at the Super Bowl. Um, I'm excited to watch Mahomes drop back and pass 50 times because nobody has run on that uh, that Tampa defense all year. It's become a major pass funnel, and you know I feel like at times we've kind of seen them them tamper back. I feel like we've seen Kansas City just lay off and and you know be be very conservative, be very interested in just keeping them down alive uh, from the uh, the old Kubiak down distance thing. God <laughs> yeah. bless. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be fun to watch Mahomes rip it in a, in a, in a big game for, you know, 50 times. Uh, you reminded me that uh, Gary retired and we'll all miss him. And uh, imagine the Texans were thought of when Gary was there. It's like, what a classy franchise with Gary in charge. That was your problem. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> I know my my uh, buddy Sage Rosenfels just the other day said on this podcast he was like yeah it's weird when I was playing for the Texans it was a fine work environment not so much now so well uh, Rivers here's the thing 
You are an absolute must follow for this circus at Rivers McCown. And you do great work. You write super well. I, I read everything that you post. And uh, people should do that, too. If nothing else, just to feel better about the Vikings. Like, we talk about all the time, like, eh, we're not sure the Vikings direction. And, eh, you know, is the coach and quarterback really match up? And it's like, but look at this team. <laughs> One of the weirdest things about this has been, okay, so at the end of the season, I was at – and I, I, made, I made a note for this only because I wanted to thank people about it. Uh, since I'm since I'm independent, uh, you know, RiversMcCown.com is where I write everything usually. I wanted to thank people for following this year because some people jumped on, even though it was a bad season. I was at 8,100. I'm almost at 9,000 now <laughs> from just this one month of terrible things. People, you seem to love following car crashes. Oh my this god, is one of the best ones. Yes, yes. I take your tweets and I send them to my friends, and I'm just like, look at this, look at this press conference quote. Are you serious? The guy said he wouldn't call him Hollywood Brown. Like, <laughs> it's just great. It's great. Well, you know what? Somebody's got to cover the car wrecks uh, as well as the championships. So you're doing it, and you're taking one for all of us. Um, but seriously, you do great work, so people should follow you at Rivers McCown. And uh, I thank you for reliving this as you have every day, uh, a nightmarish Groundhog Day of following the Houston Texans. Yes, that's exactly what this is on 2-2. <laughs> oh.